hope my voice makes it through the sermon. And a couple weeks ago, I got something just a tickle in my throat, and it just just doesn't want to go away. So we'll see. We're still in our series, my series, our series on First Samuel about kings uh, and the journey that David and the Hebrew nation took from having no king to where they did have a king. And next week we'll get a little bit more into that journey and the subplot there is that, that concept of anger and how anger played into Saul and David and the situation there. But today is the first Sunday in Advent. We have the Advent candle. Uh, and so providentially, the passage today from 1 Samuel, it links King David and some of the events in 1 Samuel with Jesus. I hope you'll see how that, how that happens, you know, as we get, as I get through it. Advent is looking forward to God's salvation. And so I was thinking, how do, we, how do I reconcile this passage about David in 1 Samuel with the coming of the Savior? Well, I worked for a fellow once, and he always said, there's no problem so big you can't be solved. And so I said, there has to be a solution. And as we look as we think about Advent, the coming of the Savior, don't forget it was also the coming of the promised king, God's promised king. And it's, it's difficult to miss that when we read the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is all about Jesus as king. And so it's kind of hard to miss that. And so today when we look at King David, I think we'll see how David in some ways foreshadows some of the things that Jesus will experience when he comes as that promised king. We have a rather long passage today, and it's it's like, ah, that's kind of long, but I'm always inclined not to cut things out and make them shorter. I think God's word is always interesting and beneficial, and so... It's a little bit longer passage, and I'm not going to ask you to stand up. But I'm reading from 1 Samuel 23, 1, and we'll go through 24, 7. I forgot to turn that on. 1 Samuel 23, 1. Then David was told, look. The Philistines are fighting for Kilah and are looting the threshing floors. And he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Kilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Kilah, fought the Philistines, 
and carried off their livestock. And he inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kilah. Now Abathar, son of Amalek, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Kilah. And Saul was told that David had gone to Kilah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go to Kilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod. And David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Kilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Kilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. And again David asked, will the citizens of Kilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kilah and kept moving from place to place. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Kilah, he did not go there. And David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. And while David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home. But David remained at Horesh. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh, on the hill of Hekiah, south of Jessamun? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. I will go with you if he is in the area. I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, in Arabah, south of Jezamun. And Saul and his men began to search. 
And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. And when Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are attacking the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamalekkoch. And David went from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us now through your word. May we be admonished, encouraged, um, instructed by it for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So very, some very interesting events happen here. They're obviously here for our benefit or else God wouldn't have put them in Scripture. I have three, kind of point out three areas. And the first one is, David now begins behaving like God's king. Okay? David now begins in 23, 1 Samuel 23, begins more acting like God's king. If you remember in chapter 21 and 22, somebody said, I have a great memory, it's just short. I hope you can remember, in 21 and 22, David is trying to outwit Saul on his own. He's doing it, he's just trying to, remember he goes to, he goes to the priest, he leaves the country, he goes to the enemies and fakes that he's mentally retarded and, or something, and he's doing all these gymnastics on his own and he's not behaving like God's promised king at all. In 22.5, David comes back to the promised land. And then there's the story of Saul killing the priestly line of Eli. 
Um, and then in 23.1, the Philistines, or Philistines, that's the right, Enes or Enes, I don't know. We know who they are, the bad guys. They attack Kila, and David gets word, and his inclination is, let's go. We can do this. We can do this thing. But notice, this time he first inquires of the Lord. In 21 and 22, he's just doing things on his own. So in 23, 1, he says, he inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? He inquired of the Lord. Shall I go? And God says, yes. So David's ready to go, but what do his men say? They aren't quite as convinced as David. So what does God's king or anointed king do? He works to assure them that they are following God's direction and there's a great victory. This is what godly leaders are supposed to do. They're supposed to help God's people see God's way forward and then lead. Where's Saul? This was really Saul's job. He was the king. He should have rallied his troops to go and defend and fight for this city, these Israelites and Kilah. He's nowhere to be found. But David, he hears word and he responds, and so he is behaving like the king of God's people is supposed to behave. We come to verse 6, and it's, it's a parenthesis. David is protecting and keeping God's priest uh, with him. Remember, we read that, I think, in 22 and chapter 22 and he has this ephod and there's a lot of questions about what the ephod was and it's a um, it was used they used it when they wanted to inquire of the lord and i i'm not more of a scholar to know exactly maybe we can talk about it in discipleship class if anybody has a good idea what an ephod is but it's a it's a it's it's a thing and they used it when they prayed and asked God for direction, and somehow it provided direction. Um, even when he learns um, that Saul is after him again, what does David do? He says, bring the ephod. I want to I ask God what I should be doing. So here's another example of David wanting God's direction, not wanting to, you know, strike out on his own. And this time God says, no, he's, they're going to come and get you. You're not going to win. Flee, don't fight. And so God's leading David, and David is looking for God's input into what he should do. And he's trusting that God is going to lift him up at the right time and in his way. Another reason this story might be here is 
the citizens of Kyla, why would they, who had just rescued them? David, right? David and his men came, they fought off the Philistines, took, you know, got the cattle back from the Philistines, and they rescued this city. What happens? They turn on David. They say, oh, Saul, we're going to help you. And it shows that not all the citizens of Israel were convinced that David was God's anointed. In John 1.11, we read that Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. Remember? And so just like the people didn't accept David, that was a picture of the people weren't going to accept that promised King Jesus when he came. And so David feels this um, abandonment in a way, the same way Jesus did. So that's a connection of David pointing to what Jesus would also experience. So this first section, 1 to 13, David is behaving more like the king. He's asking God for direction. He's protecting God's people. And he, he experiences rejection. Okay. The next section is uh, 23, 14 to 18. And this is, the king needs some encouragement. David, the king, needs some encouragement. So we see David trusting God more, asking for direction, fighting for the people. And what's David's status? He's still on the run. Saul is, God, I'm doing all this. I'm, I'm looking to you for guidance. I, I'm fighting the people. You can imagine David might be thinking, how, how long before God does something? I'm getting a little, I don't think he was belly aching, but he's, he's wondering. Then in verse 15 we read, while David was at Horash in the desert, desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. But then in 16, Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. Wow. How encouraging do you think that was to David? He's on the run. Here comes Jonathan's, or Saul's son Jonathan, his friend, said, David, Hang in there. You're God's anointed king. I know it. Most of us know it. My dad knows it. And Jonathan proves his loyalty and his servant's heart by encouraging God's anointed king to whom he had, Jonathan, had pledged his allegiance. When I put the order of worship together, I had Old Testament reading, New Testament reading. Jennifer said, 
But this isn't an Old Testament reading. This is two New Testament readings. I say, yeah, I know. We're going to have two New Testament readings today. Um, so in the second New Testament reading, it was about Jesus, God's eternal king, when he, too, was being tested and needed encouragement. What? Jesus needed encouragement? That's what I read. He didn't ask anyone, but I sensed that God saw fit to send angels to minister to him. Right? Why would, why would Jesus need angels to serve him, to minister to him? I think that was the encouragement that Jesus, the human person Jesus, needed. So, David, God's anointed king, I imagine was discouraged, had had a lot of trials and testing, needed to be encouraged, and Jonathan came along. Now we have Jesus being tempted and tested by Satan, and he needs encouragement. So when we see David, that's a picture also of what Jesus would experience. Do we do that? Are we sensitive to when our leaders are running out of steam? When they may need an encouraging word? When Taylor arrives in Perrysburg and begins his work, he'll be all energetic and charged up. He's already asked, what have you been studying? I want to make sure I'm focusing on some things that can help us not repeat stuff, but move us in the right direction. But there'll certainly come a time when he doesn't see as much progress as they taught him in seminary that if you do these three things, this is what the church is gonna happen. This is what's gonna happen. You're gonna have church growth and you're gonna have numbers and you'll be baptizing people. And he's gonna say, wait a minute, they were, sorry. They were lying to me. It's not happening the way they told me it was going to happen, right? Some of us will disappoint him. And we may not move as fast and in the direction that he's put a lot of effort into. And he will get discouraged. It's, I guarantee you it's going to happen. I guarantee you. Let's not fail to encourage. Just like Jonathan encouraged David, we need to be there to encourage our leaders. So David begins behaving like a king. Then he gets discouraged and he needs some encouragement. And Jonathan comes alongside to encourage. And then finally, this is a, this is, there's positive things and there's negative things. So this is the negative, one of the negative things. Beware of golden opportunities, okay? Beware of golden opportunities. At last, things, maybe the tide seems to be turning for David. But the Ziphites, just like the people from 
Kyla, Kyla, they tell Saul, hey, we know where David's at and we'll help you find him. And Saul's just too happy to take the help again, right? But Saul knows that David is crafty, that David's very smart, and so Saul plays coy. He says, I need more information before I get in on this chase. But he gets it, and soon he's on chasing David again, and David's on the run. And when David is just over the next hill, enemy attack, enemy attack. This chapter must be in the Hollywood um, screenwriter's training manual. Diversion at the 11th hour, right? Just, just Saul is forced to halt. David is spared. God comes through in the nick of time. Why was God napping? Did God just wake up before disaster struck? I don't think so. Once again, David gets a little breathing room. But once Saul's army, this time they fight the Philistines, Saul comes back with, with 3,000 soldiers. How many did David have? 600. That's 5x, right? Five times what David has. And he resumes the hunt. And David seems like he's on the run again. Proverbs 16.9 says, Man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And I think that's applicable here both for Saul and for David. Well, as luck would have it. No, it's not luck. It's God directing their steps, right? David and his men have taken cover in a cave. There must have been several caves in this area, and there was sheep pens, and so they probably, in inclement weather, they maybe put some of the sheep in some caves, or the shepherds stayed in the caves. Anyway, David's men have taken cover in these caves. They're hiding. Must have been pretty big to put 600 guys in there. And who happens to walk into the cave, one of the caves where David's at, but King Saul, and actually in in the Hebrew it says to attend to his needs. All right, whatever that means, we think it means he probably was going in there to relieve himself. But, um, David's men say, this is what we've been waiting for. God has finally delivered Saul into your hands. It's time to kill him and take the throne for which you've been anointed. Sure seems like that's the narrative, doesn't it? What timing? It's not like David snuck up on Saul. It's not like David took the initiative to hunt Saul down and lay a trap. David's running from Saul. This appears to be 100% God's will, God's doing. Must be his will, right? I think when we're predisposed to a solution, 
we see God's confirmation in about everything, right? Oh, it must be God's will. It must be God's will. Well, that's one of those golden opportunities I think we have to be careful about. I think it's not so fast. And David demonstrates that his trust is still in God and not in the coincidences, not in luck, not in perfect circumstances. David will not cross the line and lay his hand on God's anointed. Of course, Saul is completely unaware of what's going on this it's a little bit like Job, where there's this scene in heaven that's going on and it's dramatic, and Job doesn't have a clue. Saul doesn't have a clue what's going on here, but there's real drama between David and his men. And David lets Saul go. How does that relate to Jesus? Well, in today's second New Testament reading in Matthew 4, Jesus is, a, is tempted to take a shortcut. Worship Satan, worship me, and you won't have to endure the suffering on the cross. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all that authority that God said you're going to get. I'll give it to you early. You can take the easy route. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. When Satan dangled that victory without suffering to Jesus, must have been tempting, just like it must have been tempting for David. He had, without a fight, without, he could have killed him right there. He was, had him in the palm of his hand almost. But Jesus did not take the shortcut. He resisted the easy path and said, I'm going to do things God's way, even if it means suffering. David, the king, in this event anyway, is a wonderful picture of how Jesus would also not succumb to the shortcut. And David wouldn't. It was so easy. But he said, no, I'm not going to do it. Are we willing to stay the line? Are we willing not to cut corners? Or are we keen to look for that easy victory? We need to be on guard to see coincidence as, oh, it's got to be direction from the Lord. It would have been easy for David to interpret things that way. Yet he said no. And temptation can come from even well-meaning friends. I mean, look at David's his loyal Soldiers, come on, David, this is what God wants. It's obvious. It's God's will. We can get that from people. 
we need to encourage our well-meaning friends to help them and help us find biblical strategies, biblical plans, biblical actions that will reflect real godly and righteous behavior on our part. So just to review, David starts behaving like a king in 23.1. He's back in the land. He's consulting God before he makes moves, and he's caring for God's people. That's a picture of Jesus. Jesus came to his people to save them. The king needs encouragement. Encouragement that Jonathan brought was so helpful. And likewise, we see Jesus was helped by the encouragement of the angels. Spiritual leadership can be a hard go. There can be stretches with little progress. And that's when leaders need encouragement. We should look for opportunities to encourage our pastors, our elders, our teachers, and I would say it also goes for leaders in the workplace or in government. Will we be encouragers? And finally, beware of those golden opportunities. David rejected the shortcut when presented with one. And Jesus also resisted the temptation to take that easy route. We need to be on our guard against shortcuts, not to see every coincidence or situation or circumstances that's got to be direction from the Lord, especially if it makes us contemplate behaviors or actions that don't quite align with Scripture. Let me pray.